Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Killer Psyche ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. A listener note. This episode contains adult content and is not suitable for everyone. Please be advised. Eighteen-year-old Leslie O'Dell was in trouble, and she desperately wanted to go home. The Washington State native had left to follow her boyfriend across the country, but by the time the couple arrived in Maine, their relationship was over. She boarded a bus heading home, but instead decided to get off in New York City. Without friends around and with very little money, Leslie immediately attracted the attention of the predators who hung out in the bus station, waiting for young people to prey on. Within hours of her arrival, Leslie was trafficked as a sex worker by one of the men who spotted her. Four days later, on May 22, 1980, Leslie thought her luck had finally changed. Around 1 a.m. that morning, a man picked her up and agreed to pay her $100 an hour for her services. He showed her a large bundle of cash, claiming he had just won it at the casinos. He took her for drinks and listened while Leslie told him her story. The man sympathized with her and offered to help her get home. He bought her dinner and told her he would take her to the bus station and pay for her fare home. Relieved, Leslie told the man how nice it was to finally find someone willing to help her. To which the man replied, you'll do anything when it comes down to life and death situations. To Leslie, the man was going to be her savior, but the rest of the world did not see him that way. That man, Richard Cottingham, was known by many names including the New York Ripper, the Times Square Killer, and the Torso Killer. And just a few hours later, Leslie O'Dell found out just how true her so-called savior's words really were. As a Killer Psyche listener, you'll love Audible's new pulse-pounding collection of exclusive thrillers that are guaranteed to keep you on the edge of your seat. With captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances, their titles are brought to life. I recommend The Killer Across the Table by John Douglas, my mentor at the FBI Behavioral Science Unit, and his co-author, Mark Olshacker. It is great. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash psyche or text psyche to 500-500. That's audible.com slash psyche or text psyche to 500-500. Killer Psyche is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. 
You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From Wondery and Treefort, I'm Candace DeLong, and this is the second season of Killer Psyche. I've spent five decades studying people's minds through my work as an FBI profiler and psychiatric nurse. I've interviewed dozens of murderers, including serial killers, and the question of why they did it is what I get asked time and time again. I want to give you a satisfying answer, so I'm diving deep into the mindsets of these criminals to give you my best analysis of what made them do what they did. This episode is Richard Cottingham, the Torso Killer. Richard Cottingham's help came with conditions. After all, he said, he paid for her services, so he wanted to have sex before he sent her home. He checked them into the Quality Inn Motel around 5 a.m. and told Leslie to take off her clothes and lay on her stomach. Richard then put a knife to her throat, handcuffed her wrist, and warned her not to scream, or he would kill her. According to Leslie, Richard told her she was a, quote, whore who needed to be punished and that he was going to hurt her badly. He told her he, quote, got off hurting girls and seeing them in pain, that the other girls took it and she would have to take it too. Then he beat, raped, and tortured Leslie for hours. He cut and bit her and made her submit to a sadomasochistic master-slave ritual, all while threatening her with a gun and a knife. When he switched her handcuffs to her ankles, Leslie spotted the gun he had put down and grabbed it. She jumped up and pointed the gun at him, but that did not seem to scare him. He grabbed his knife and walked toward her. She pulled the trigger and discovered why he was not afraid. The gun was a fake. She had nothing to lose, so Leslie screamed as loud as she could. A hotel worker heard her and reported the scream to the front desk, who then called the room to ask if all was okay. With Richard standing over her, Leslie told the hotel manager she was fine, but the manager insisted on sending someone to the room. When they showed up to the door, Leslie opened it and repeated that all was fine. But she signaled with her hand across her throat that she was in trouble. Thankfully, the hotel employee understood her and called police. 
This was not the first time that Richard Cunningham took his victims to this particular hotel. Although after the police arrived, it was the last. But we'll get into that in a minute. Richard's crime started, as far as we know, 13 years earlier in late October 1967. In Little Ferry, New Jersey, 29-year-old Nancy Vogel, a married mother of two boys, left home to play bingo with her friends at a local church. She never made it there. The next morning, Nancy's husband called police to report her missing. Several days passed before her body was discovered sitting upright in her car close to where she lived. She was nude except for a pair of silk socks on her feet. A pink seat covering was draped over her body. Her hands were tied together with a nylon rope in front of her body. Ligature marks were on her neck. She had been beaten, raped, and strangled to death. Inside the car, investigators found her clothes folded neatly alongside her purse. They believe Vogel was murdered in her car while at another location and then driven to a nearby park. The murder went unsolved for 43 years before Cottingham finally confessed in 2010. At the time of Nancy's murder, Cottingham would have been only 20 years old. But this was just the beginning of Cottingham's post-incarceration confessions. Since 2010, he has admitted to murdering more than 20 women, but he claims the total number of women he has killed is about 100. This number includes 23-year-old Diane Cusick, a married mother of a three-year-old daughter. Three months after Nancy Vogel's murder, Diane left her job at a children's dance school and went to a local mall on New York's Long Island to buy shoes. Posing as a security guard, Cottingham approached her in the parking lot and accused her of stealing. Then he attacked and killed her. Early the next morning, Cusick's father found his daughter's battered body in the back seat of her car in the mall parking lot. She had been raped, beaten over the head and face, and strangled to death. Cusick's murder was solved in June of 2022 when DNA technology had advanced enough to generate a profile from a semen sample that was left on her dress. Cottingham was a 100% match. This is possibly the oldest DNA hit to lead to a successful prosecution in the United States. From 1968 to 1974, Cottingham killed nine more females, ranging in ages 13 to 33. These murders were only solved by DNA and Richard's confessions decades later. Another Cottingham victim was 26-year-old Marianne Carr, an X-ray technician. 
On December 15, 1977, she was found brutally beaten and strangled in the parking lot of the same Quality Inn where Leslie Odell was rescued. Carr had not been sexually assaulted, but there were imprints on her wrist and ankles indicating she was bound with handcuffs. Her purse, shoes, stockings, and coat were all missing. One of the more gruesome crime scenes, which earned him the nickname the Torso Killer, occurred on December 2nd, 1979. On that date, New York City firefighters responded to a call at the Travel Inn on West 42nd Street in Manhattan. They found two badly burned bodies on twin beds. Both of them were missing their hands and their heads. Only one victim was identified, 26-year-old Didi Gudarza. The other victim, who was possibly as young as 16, was never identified. In a newspaper interview in 2009, Cottingham admitted to the killings. He said he severed their heads and hands so his victims could not be identified. Cottingham had been seen with Dee Dee in a bar the night she was murdered, and he did not want to chance anyone tracing it back to him. Neither woman's head nor hands were ever found. On May 5th, 1980, Cottingham went to the same quality inn and left behind another victim. A hotel maid was later vacuuming the room when she detected a foul odor coming from under the bed. She lifted the mattress and discovered the handcuffed body of an 18-year-old female sex worker. Her body was noted to be covered with bruises and she had bite marks on her breasts. Her hands were still tightly handcuffed behind her back. This time, police found some evidence. They were able to lift a fingerprint from the handcuffs, and weeks later, that fingerprint was matched to Cottingham. It was the only fingerprint successfully found at any of his known murder sites. Ten days later, on May 15th, New York police were called to the city's historic Seville Hotel to investigate yet another gruesome homicide. A 25-year-old female sex worker had been strangled and her throat slashed. Her breast had been cut off and placed on the headboard of the bed. The killer set fire to the mattress under her body before fleeing the scene, all of which was quite similar to the travel in torso killings. And that brings us back to Leslie Odell. The Seville Hotel murder happened just one week before Richard Cottingham coaxed Leslie Ann Odell into his car. The Quality Inn hotel staff was on alert since the discovery of the sex worker's body. As a result, the manager called police after Leslie screamed while hotel security knocked on the door. After Leslie signaled with her hand to her throat, they knew she needed help. 
Cunningham knew the police would be on their way. He tried to gather his things and flee. An officer encountered Cunningham in the hallway of the hotel, pointed his service weapon at him, and ordered him to freeze. In Cottingham's bag, police found a toy gun, a push blade, two sets of handcuffs, two leather slave collars, a mouth gag, and narcotics. There was also a key to the handcuffs still on Odell's wrists. Cottingham insisted he was innocent and that Odell was lying about their consensual encounter. The police didn't buy it, and Richard Cottingham was arrested. The torso killer was finally caught. Now he was the one in handcuffs. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. If you remember how powerful it felt to snap a hot pink razor flip phone shut after getting off the phone... You're a millennial, and if you're a millennial, it's time to add Clarins Multi-Active Cream to your daily routine. Rooted in nature and innovated with science, Clarins has a long legacy of creating industry-first, plant-forward products. Using a skin charger complex made of 2% niacinamide and C-Holly Bioextract, Clarins Multi-Active Cream has been clinically proven to target the first visible signs of aging by smoothing lines and wrinkles, refining pores, evening tone and texture, and strengthening the skin's moisture barrier. While multi-active creams can't bring back the golden age of boy bands, it can distress your skin. Clarins Multi-Active Cream is available online now. Go to clarins.com slash truecrime and get multi-active day and night cream for 10% off, a free welcome gift, plus free shipping on your first order. That's C-L-A-R-I-N-S dot com slash truecrime with promo code truecrime. Clarence.com slash true crime with promo code true crime. Richard Francis Cottingham was born in Bronx, New York on November 25th, 1947. The oldest of four children, Richard led a fairly privileged life. His father was the vice president of Metropolitan Life Insurance Company, and his mother was a homemaker. Richard's childhood was relatively uneventful. Peter Vronsky, an investigative journalist who wrote a book about Cottingham, reports that he did not suffer from any abuse growing up. But he was hit by a car when he was only four years old, and this caused him to have frontal lobe damage. 
We've talked about traumatic brain injury, or TBI, in several other episodes. And as we've discussed in the past, one of the side effects of TBI is behavioral and emotional changes. Damage to the frontal lobe can often impact a person's ability to control their anger and aggression. But Vronsky was the only source I found that mentioned TBI. And because of the lack of emotional trauma in his childhood, authorities called him the Enigma, a nickname that made Richard proud. But it's not unusual for serial killers to not admit that they had problems in childhood. In the book, Through the Eyes of Serial Killers, Interviews with Seven Murderers, author Nadia Fazani wrote that Cottingham admitted to her that not everything in his childhood was idyllic. Although his father was often absent, his parents were loving. Richard loved animals and raised homing pigeons, and he fed deer. His intelligence was reported to be above average, and he attended good schools where he was popular and happy. Quote, And then, one day, he left a school where he had been admired by all and entered one where he was rejected. He retreated into his shell and became a loner. The Cottingham family moved again a few years later, but it was too late. In young Cottingham's mind, the damage was done. He could have garnered respect from pupils at his third school, but he no longer wanted it. In his opinion, his days of fitting in were over. Inside his shell, he was making diabolical plans. Before Fazani interviewed him in person, she submitted written questions to him. His answers were very telling. For example, she asked him what kind of child he was, and he told her that he was good-looking, smart, and sensitive. He spoke about having two girlfriends by age eight, and they fought over him, but that he felt like a loner directing a crowd. He also wrote that he was a, quote, manipulative control freak and said he was always at the center of anything going on. The center of everything. Does that sound like anything to you, KP listeners? I'll give you a hint. It starts with a gnar and ends with a cyst. But more on that in a moment. He wrote about the change in schools from the co-ed school where most of his friends were girls to the all-male Catholic school where he became gawky and introverted and he was no longer the center of attention. Richard claimed to have been a very good shoplifter. He believes that if someone had caught him, he might have straightened out his life. That's a typical narcissist response right there never accepting responsibility for their own bad acts. It was not his fault that he became a serial killer. If only the police had caught him shoplifting. I'm sorry, but I don't buy it. From getting away with stealing a candy bar to becoming a serial killer? Uh Uh-uh, that doesn't work for me. 
During his pre-teenage years, Richard became interested in bondage, and this fascination continued to grow as he got older. The Journal of Sex Research published a study in 2020 tracking how practitioners of BDSM, bondage, discipline, dominance, and submission, and sadomasochism got into it. What they found are two very broad categories of motivations, intrinsic and extrinsic. These motivations also have numerous more specific subcategories, but let's address the more general descriptions. According to author and social psychologist Dr. Justin Lemeler, quote, intrinsic motivations are deeply rooted in the personal history of the individual. These reasons tend to characterize BDSM as a trait, disposition, orientation, or identity, something that comes from within. On the other hand, extrinsic motivations are developed through an environmental process. They originate outside of the person. These reasons tend to characterize BDSM as something that is learned or as a response to some life experience. From what we know about Richard's childhood, I'm leaning towards saying that his interest in BDSM was more intrinsic, especially since he admits that he was interested in bondage at a young age. BDSM is different than having a paraphilia. In case you don't recall from earlier Killer Psyche episodes, a paraphilia is a condition in which, according to Psychology Today, quote, a person's sexual arousal and gratification depends on fantasizing about and engaging in sexual behavior that is atypical and extreme. A paraphilia is considered a disorder when it causes distress or threatens to harm someone else. Just to be clear, there is absolutely nothing wrong with consenting adults engaging in BDSM. But Richard Cottingham was not just interested in BDSM. Richard was a sexual sadist. Being a practitioner of BDSM is not equivocal to being a sexual sadist. With BDSM, there is consent and no distress. The issue is when one of the adults is not consenting or one is taking it farther than the other feels comfortable with. And Richard Cottingham definitely took it too far. After working for his father's insurance company in high school, Richard took computer classes and became a computer technician for Blue Cross Blue Shield in New York City. The offices in Midtown Manhattan gave Richard access to the perfect hunting ground of Times Square and 42nd Street. Interesting fact, Richard worked in the same office as Rodney Alcala, the dating game killer. Neither man claimed to have been aware of the other one during that time. But the fact that two of the worst sexual sadist serial killers in United States history were working in the same place at the same time 
is, well, let's just say it's probably a good thing that they did not become friends. The New York that we're familiar with today is nothing like the New York of the late 60s and 70s. Triple X stores and strip clubs lined the streets and sex workers were everywhere. Female sex workers were blamed for anything bad that happened to them, and few would report anything out of fear of being arrested. Richard Cottingham was able to find victims and could take his time and torture them for days without anyone questioning their whereabouts. This was very much different from the killings of his other victims who were not sex workers and they were reported missing quickly. Richard began drinking heavily and in 1969, he was arrested for drunk driving in New York City. A year later, he married. He and his wife, Janet, had three children. Richard worked the late shift in Manhattan from 3 to 11 p.m., so his wife and children, who were living in Lodi, New Jersey, were not aware of him staying out all night. He also figured out a way to cheat the system at work. He figured out how to clock in for his hours without actually being there. Richard loved talking about his sexual exploits at work. He bragged about how he cheated sex workers and left them without clothes or money at motels. But his friends at work never imagined that he could be violent and were shocked when he was arrested. Beginning in 1972, Richard began having minor legal trouble. He was arrested for shoplifting, a crime he insisted to his wife was a mistake, and he paid a $50 fine. Cunningham isn't the only serial killer I'm aware of that shoplifted. He did not have to do it. He was making good money. Ted Bundy also did it, and he did it when he did not have to. Why did they do it? For the thrill, the thrill of getting away with the crime. After that, he had two charges from sex workers, one for robbery, sodomy, and sex abuse, and the other for robbery and false imprisonment. However, the accusers did not show up for the hearings, and the charges were dropped. In 1978, Janet filed for divorce on the grounds of financial problems and mental cruelty. Richard had refused to have sex with her after the birth of their third child. He was, however, having multiple affairs and encounters with sex workers. Janet withdrew the petition after his arrest in 1980, but she refiled after his conviction. In Nadia Fazani's book, one of the questions she asks Richard is, did you rape your victims? In return, he asks her, what did she consider rape? He goes on to say that he never physically forced anyone to have sex with him and that even sex workers asked to see him again. Probably not the multitudes he killed. He told her that he could, quote, charm the panties off a nun. I think this might be the right time to address the narcissism at play here. 
this is a textbook case of malignant narcissism. That is a subtype of narcissistic personality disorder, or NPD, and some experts believe it is the most severe subtype. While malignant narcissism is not recognized in the DSM-5 as a formal diagnosis, the term is used in the mental health community to describe a combination of extreme narcissism and APD, antisocial personality disorder. Campbell's Psychiatric Dictionary explains that malignant narcissism not only combines NPD and APD, but it includes aggression, sadism, and paranoia. Again, this describes Richard Cunningham to a T. If it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it's a duck. And if it walks like a narcissist and talks like a narcissist, it's a narcissist. As far as Richard's mutilation of some of his victims, he insists that they were done to conceal their identities and to throw law enforcement off his trail by not killing or leaving his victims the same each time. This is true, his method of killing varied, but his method of killing was not important. He was a sexual sadist. And as I always say, for a sadist, the party stops for them the moment the victim dies. Why? They can no longer derive pleasure from their victim's suffering. There is so much more to say about Richard Cottingham's psyche. But I think I will quote his own words at his arrest. Quote, I have a problem with women. That, I believe, is the understatement of the year. This episode is brought to you in part by June's Journey. Picture it, the glamour of the roaring 20s wrapped in a mystery that only you can solve. Dive into June Parker's captivating quest to uncover scandalous family secrets. With your keen eye for detail, find hidden clues and solve mind-boggling puzzles. It's all about observation intrigue, and drama. But beware, each clue leads deeper into a thrilling storyline filled with danger and romance. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Your adventure awaits. After his arrest, police found several of the victim's personal effects in a locked room in Richard's house. This further cemented the prosecution's case. Richard Cottingham was charged with over 20 offenses, including kidnapping, attempted murder, aggravated assault, aggravated sexual assault while armed, possession of a weapon, and possession of a controlled and dangerous substance. Richard pled not guilty to all charges. A few days after his arrest, Cottingham attempted to commit suicide by taking a broken lens from his glass frames and cutting his wrists. This would be the first of his two suicide attempts during his incarceration. The next would be an overdose of sleeping pills after his conviction. 
both times the guards stopped him. Richard was eventually convicted of five murders in three separate trials and sentenced to hundreds of years in prison. After refusing for years to give interviews, he finally granted one to Nadia Ferrazzi. After this experience, the daughter of one of his victims, Didi Gudarzi, one of the women he had beheaded, reached out and formed a relationship with Cottingham, hoping to get him to admit to other murders he was suspected of committing. Together with others, they have elicited confessions from Richard for 11 additional murders. And the 76-year-old continues to confess to more to this day. I will end this episode with Richard's description of himself in Nadia Ferrazzi's book. I see my life as that of the architecture of pure evil. My life became unmanageable under the influence of a force so powerful that the consequences became insignificant. And my inability to want to control these impulses is what made me who I am. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review. Follow Killer Psyche on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the Wondery app, or wherever you're listening right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app to listen one week early and ad-free. In the episode notes, you'll find some links and offers from our sponsors. Please support them. By supporting them, you help us offer the show for free. Another way you can support the show is by filling out a survey at wondery.com survey. From Wondery and Treefort Media, this is Killer Psyche. I'm your host, Candace DeLong. This episode was written and produced by Lisa Ammerman and Julie Burke. Story research and additional writing by Anne Liu. Mix and sound design by Joshua Morales. Senior audio producer, Maxwell Carney. Head of audio, Tom Monahan. Renee Levesque is our production manager. Lindsay Whistler, Colin Modell, and Jada Williams are production assistants. Oscar Guido is the producer from Treefort Media. From Amazon Music and Wondery, the producer is Stephanie Joaquin. And the co-executive producer is Julie Burke. Lastly, our executive producers are Kelly Garner and Lisa Ammerman for Treefort and Marshall Louie and Erin O'Flaherty for Wondery. The series is produced by Wondery and Treefort Media. Alex Ryder is back. Hello, Alex. We have a lot of work to do. To face his greatest challenge yet. We have an active threat. They can wipe out an entire city. People are going to die. Now. <laughs> 
He's running out of time. We have three days to find and destroy. He doesn't know who he can trust. You're not your enemies. You never have been. Everything I've been told has been lies. And our future is in his hands. The truth can be complicated. On April 5th... This weapon is capable of inflicting 100,000 deaths in a heartbeat. The danger is everywhere. Scorpio are no longer hiding in the shadows. The battle threatens everyone. It's personal. It's revenge. It's kill or be killed. That's when you find out what you're really capable of. And his choice could change everything. I'm sick of being manipulated to do what everyone else wants. Tell him the truth, all of it. The world isn't black and white. All we really have are the people we trust. Alex Ryder, season three, streaming free April 5th. Stream seasons one and two free now.